Happy Hump Day, Bingers! My guest today is a household name in the true crime space. He's written books, he's appeared on multiple podcasts, including the very popular Missing Maura Murray podcast, and he's the host of The Philosophy of Crime. Please welcome the one and only Mr. James Renner. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. Well, hey James, thanks for thanks for joining me. It's it's good to talk to you. I haven't seen you since since CrimeCon. How are things going? Things are good. I just got back from uh, CrimeCon UK, actually, back from London. Um, we we uh, we missed you there. You got to come back. You got to come next year. Yeah, I you know I I kind of wasn't really too much aware of what was going. on. I wasn't planning on going to CrimeCon this year, and then kind of oh. last minute decided to go. So I was kind of out of out of the loop on everything. How was it in London? It was amazing. Um, I've never been. I've never been to England before, and uh, I was surprised that uh, so many people in the UK are aware of the cases that I've covered, specifically the Amy Mihalovic case and the the Moore Murray uh, disappearance. And uh, yeah, they've got a huge, you know, the true crime addicts over there, just just like over here. It seems a little more condensed, though. But they had it was great, yeah. Uh, met met a t- met a lot of really nice people and a, a lot of new podcasters that are headquartered out of the UK. Yeah, it's cool. But I went there. I think it was twenty end of twenty eighteen. I went and did a speaking tour through the UK, um, talking about the West Memphis Three case. Oh, nice! How'd that go? It was awesome, man. It was. We, I went. Uh, uh, you probably met the people that brought me out there. The their company is called Just Killing Time. They do like a like a subscription box for true crime stuff. Sure, yeah. Kayla and Lindsay they they had brought me out and booked me to do the tour, and and we it was it was neat. I felt like a traveling band, you know. I went out. <laughs> I had never been to the UK either. My wife and I went out. We landed in London and then took a train all the way up to um, Newcastle, and then we did an event in Newcastle. Then we went up into Scotland and did an, an event in Edinburgh. Wow. And then back to back to Manchester and then back to London. So yeah, it was it was it was a really cool trip. I've never been and and got to just riding around in a van with yeah. with Kayla and Lindsay the whole time. It was neat. <laughs> That's great. But I di- I didn't get to experience much in London. That was our last stop, and it was like we had you know a long drive, and then that was the the last show, and it was late at night, and then we flew out the next morning. So I, I didn't even see London. Oh no, really in the daylight while I was there. Did you did you at least find time for a proper English breakfast at some point? I did, and that's exactly what they call it. It was, uh, or you know what? It wasn't the proper English breakfast. It was, a, it was on a Sunday, hmm. and I think they called it the proper proper dinner or something like. Or okay. The, uh, did you get the, it? the York- blood sausage and uh, beans and all that crazy stuff? You know, we did have that in our hotel one day. Okay, good. And then that proper dinner, we had like the Yorkshire pudding and mm. that whole that yeah. whole deal in this little pub in uh, in Newcastle. Oh, great. It, it was cool. I, I would love to go back there and, and spend more time. My only claim to fame in when I was in London is I, I sort of punked out Idris Elba. Um, because <laughs> how'd, that, how'd that happen? 
<laughs> because I'm an idiot and I don't know anything about pop, pop culture at all. <laughs> and we had um, we were in Notting Hill is where we did the the event and mm. all the other events we'd finished speaking. There were you know anywhere from that particular one. I think there was about 200 people there. Some of them were you know between 50 and 200. Wow. It was one of the bigger ones. And all the other events we would you know I did my presentation and then we'd kind of move into the bar area and it would nice. be like a, a meet and greet sure well not in notting hill they have all these these rules about noise and all this stuff and so they told us like you have to leave when it's done wow. which i don't really listen to people generally so the, sure. like, the, <laughs> the, the show gets over and i tell people i'm like all right well we'll go upstairs we'll go into the bar and uh yeah. and love to meet some of you and and when I did that, then I was greeted by some very um, not very nice British man who said, "You guys have to go now." <laughs> I'm like, what so then some some people said, "Well, let's let's go up the road to the, there's this pub up here. We'll go up there and we'll do a meet and greet because you know people want to take pictures and stuff." Yeah. So we go walking up the road, and I have this weird. I don't like. I, I'm not a fan of of crowds. I don't like a lot of people around me. I have a, like sure. a personal bubble issue. Yeah. And, and so we're getting ready to go in and the place is packed and oh, someone no. comes out and tells me we're in a room in the back. Everybody's back there waiting to take pictures and stuff. Wow. And I'm sort of like, okay, get it together. <laughs> I got to like, like fight through. It was, it was almost Christmas time. Everybody was partying. They've got this song. They sing at all the bars at Christmas there. And I'm just, I'm just like gathering my confidence to, to fight through this crowd. And as I start to walk in, some guy grabs me and he's like, Bob, Bob, Bob. Dude, Idris Elba's here. He wants to meet you. What? I don't know who <laughs> Idris Elba's is. It, oh, I, no. I mean, I mean, not even a little bit. Completely clueless. <laughs> Had you not so watched The Wire? Yeah, I did, but I didn't know his like sure. actor's name. My wife's always making fun of me because I don't know names of actors. So he starts bringing me through, and I'm like, I don't know. And plus, with his accent, I could barely understand what he was saying anyway. Yeah. And he starts working me through this crowd. Well, apparently, they saw him in there, and they told him, like, hey, we got this guy that does true crime in real life. I don't think he actually knows who I am. But <laughs> he's like, oh, bring him by. I'll have a drink with him. So I'm trying to get to the back of the bar to get to these people so I can take the pictures and get the hell out of there. Yeah. Not because I didn't want to be around the people. I just didn't want to be around that many people. Yeah, yeah. No, I understand. So I start walking through. And the, this guy who's like dragging me by the shirt, like, is like, Idris, Idris, Idris here, here he is. <laughs> and he breaks loose from his girlfriend or wife, whoever it was, and comes up and he's like, hey, man, how you doing? And he breaches out, shakes my, and I, I shake his hand and he says, oh, you want to come over and grab a picture? Nice. And I didn't know who this guy was. Yeah. And so I said, I was like, I, listen, I've got a crowd of people waiting for me back there, man. I'll, I'll get a picture with you in a minute. I'll be back in a little bit. <laughs> And walked right by. <laughs> well, good, good, yeah. good for you. So I, I big time Idris Elba. Yeah. <laughs> did did he did he wait around or was he out of there? Did you no, ever get your no, picture? No, he did not wait yeah, around. No, As a matter like, of fact, he really punked me out pretty good later because I go back and the, and then of course everybody is like, "What the hell are you doing?" Yeah, like, right. Well, that was Idris Elba. I'm like, in the and uh, Kayla and Lindsay who had taken me out there, they're like. Dude, like, like the wire. He was just voted like People Magazine's most beautiful man. And he might be the next James Bond. Yeah, all that stuff. And I'm like, oh shit! So I should have taken a picture with him then, huh? <laughs> like, yeah. So then a little while later, we move. We we I went outside and I was just standing out to get some air with a couple of people who were out there smoking. And the same guy who had hauled me in was standing out there with me. And Idris finally leaves. So now we're outside in the clear. 
and he comes walking out right by me. And he's like, Idris, here he is. You can take a picture with him now. And he's like, I'm okay, mate. And just kept on walking. Aww. <laughs> God damn it. You hurt Idris's feelings. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not the first time I've done some dumb shit like that. But that was the... He'll bump you off. Thing. If he's anything like the character on The Wire, you got to right? watch out now for yeah, the rest of your yeah. life. <laughs> oh, man. So uh, so you, you're, you're, from, you're from Ohio. Do, do you have any connection to... Uh, one of the the cases um, that you invest, actually, the case we're going to be talking about today is from Shaker Heights, and I'm trying to remember. I feel like there was a true crime garage story about yeah uh, something in Shaker Heights. Yeah, yeah, I I, I produced that with them, um, and well, I wrote out the uh, there. It was six episodes, a six episode like limited series that I think they just right. called it Shaker Heights. That's and, what uh, I, it was ringing a bell. I was in it. <laughs> yes, uh, were you one yeah. of the voices there? I was one of the VOs in it. Yeah. 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 Do you remember which uh, which which character, which person? Gosh, I don't remember. What I remember is there was the name of a bar that no one could get right. Oh, it was a coffee shop. It's uh, Arabica, but you know, so yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. the one thing. Everybody from like around here that listened to it, they're like, "Oh my god, they couldn't get Arabica right." Because you know, I think Nick was pronouncing it Arabica. And right. uh, there were like three different pronunciations, but yeah, no, it's I, Arabica. I, I have a hilarious string of emails back and forth with Nick about the pronunciation. Instead of us like calling each other like normal humans, yeah. he keeps emailing me trying to tell me how to pronounce it. Like phonetically. <laughs> yeah. Like that's, that can't be right. It's it's Arabica or whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, but I don't remember who my character was. I didn't have a whole lot of lines. So it must not have been a big one. So, but so you're from Ohio. I was first introduced to you way back in 2015 or so. Oh, wow. When I really, that's when I started getting into true crime podcasts. That's when I started um, my other show, Truth and Justice. And I was listening to Maura Murray and yeah. you played, played quite a bit of a, a role in that. Can, can you talk a little bit about like how that came to be, how you got hooked up with Nick and Lance and, and the work you did on the Maura Murray case? Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, it goes back, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. I've kind of been investigating the Maura Murray disappearance for 10 years now because I started mm -hmm. the blog back in 2011 and, um, you know, kind of started research a little bit in 2010. And uh, I was, at the time, I <laughs> I, I was a reporter for um, Cleveland Scene, uh, which is like our Village Voice newspaper. And it was a wonderful job. Um, that was like the first real job out of college and taught me, you know, how to be a journalist. And I loved it. And um, long story short, I'd wrote this uh, written this uh, political expose. Uh, I found a state senator who was using campaign finance uh, money to put his mistress up at a hotel and taking her out to Ohio State football games. And, and they do that? Yeah. Politicians? Oh, you know, <laughs> right. It's shocking. Couldn't you believe? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> and this guy was just a, a major tool. And um, so, you know, I had him five ways to Sunday and uh, it was approved by the editor and then the publisher, but we had just been bought out by a paper company from Scranton. <laughs> okay. uh, you know, like the, like <laughs> the office. Was it Dunder Mifflin? Yeah, right. It should have been. It pr pretty much was. And the CEO was a big-time Republican, and he didn't like the, uh, the article. And he's like, no, we're not going to run it. And I'm like, well, um, then you shouldn't be running a newspaper. And he's like, well, maybe right. you should be working for me. And uh, <laughs> I said, well, well, maybe go fuck yourself. And uh, right. so <laughs> <laughs> we, 
one so, of those casual but business like exchanges. Yeah, so I got I got fired, and uh, um, so I was kicking around looking for something to do, and I wanted to take on a national case of some sort, and I saw Moore Murray's um, story on I think it was 2020. It was a combination of Brooke Wellberger and Moore Murray's disappearance. And uh, Brooke Wilberger seemed like a very typical disappearance, very tragic, but but typical. More Murray, the more you learn, learn about it, the, the more red flags there are. It just doesn't make sense. Um, she was a nursing student at the University of Massachusetts Amherst in 2004, and this is the exact week that Facebook launched. She emails her professor, says there's been a death in the family, which is a lie. She gets a bunch of booze, way more than one person could drink, empties out her bank account, gets in her Saturn drives up into the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Around 7.30 that night, gets into a single-car accident, runs into the snowbank in view of, like, three houses. And a bus driver who lives there is coming back, and he stops and asks if she needs help. She says, no, I've called AAA. He knows that's a lie because you can't get cell phone signal up there to this day. So he pulls in, has his wife, common-law wife, call the police. So Moore is on the side of that road for a window of about five, no no more than like seven minutes. And sometime in there, she disappears never to be seen again. It's one of those cases, it's kind of like a Rorschach test where um, you kind of bring into it your own expectations. And I think that's why it becomes so personal with people because you can it can take you anywhere. It could be, we could be dealing with a suicide. We could be dealing with a walk away, somebody starting a new life, trying to run away from the men in her life. Um, it could be um, she walked into the woods and died of um, exposure. It could be an abduction. It could be a murder. Um, we just don't know. In, in fact, to this date, um, there's no evidence that a crime even occurred. We just have a missing adult woman, and, and it's legal to go and start a new life and not tell anybody where you're going. So um, it's a weird case. Uh, and um, that became the subject of my book, True Crime Addict, which came out in 2016. And uh, yeah, uh, um, that's that's one of those cases that, uh, you know, you can't quite get away from anymore. Um, and, and since then, I've gone back and, and uh, I'm writing, I've, I've written for uh, Scene Again, so it's kind of come full circle. That company out of, you know, Dunder Mifflin or Scranton, you know, <laughs> dumped it and... Uh, now they're they're independent again and and great and and so um you know I, I do more journalism on that side too. How did you end up getting hooked up with uh, Tim and Lance in the podcast? Well, if I recall correctly, it was the early days of the blog, and I was coming through Boston to do a little more research, and um, Lance reached out to me. He's like, hey, you know, he's, he's, he was real close to the case. He knew a lot of the, you know, the ins and outs. He was thinking about putting this podcast together. And so as I came through Boston, um, we met up and, uh, you know, I got to meet him. And then um, flash forward to, I think, 2015 uh, or th- anyways, a couple years later, th- they are putting together a documentary at that point, And they're like, hey, we have all these tips that Mora may be in Canada, specifically a small town called Sherbrooke, or maybe even Montreal. And uh, do you want to go and, and we'll film it and see if we can find her? So we all got together, and uh, I think this would have been like November of 2015, if I'm remembering correctly. And uh, we 
No, I'm going to say 2013. Sorry. Not that it matters to your listeners, but it was 2013. So we all uh, um, crossed into Canada and went looking for more Murray up there. And, um, you know, one of the places we thought we should check is, you know, these local gyms up there because she was a runner. She ran every day. It was kind of a compulsion for her. Um, and I remember walking into the gym and, and the, the woman behind the counter saying, oh, yeah, she was in here yesterday. And she was she was sure of it. And, um, you know, maybe it was just a lookalike. I don't know. But there, that happened like two or three times up there where okay. somebody was adamant. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I know this person. Um, there was a, a record store up in Montreal. And uh, the woman there spoke French. She could barely speak English, but she got in touch with us um, through email after we left. And she said, hey, I was trying to explain that, you know, I'm positive I saw Maura in here, you know, a week or two ago. She was, she had a bike and she described her. And so, you know, uh, I, I don't know. Um, there's been, there's been a number of sightings like that over the years. And she certainly had motivation to, to start a new life. Um, it's just a, it's a weird case. It just gets weirder every, every day. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, last I had heard there was a, you know, it blew through the internet, I don't know, maybe a month ago where some remains had been found. Yeah. And a lot of people were presuming that it was Mora. Has there been any updates on that? I haven't heard anything since then, if that's been confirmed or denied. Yeah. There's been no official update, but yes, all we know is like at the end of August, um, some workers that were doing work on a uh, lift at Loon Mountain Ski Resort, which is about um, 20 minutes further east of where Mora got into the accident, um, mm-hmm. 20 minutes to a half an hour, I guess. The workers, they were digging this this like trench, and they, they discovered human remains. And uh, they were recent enough that there was still hair attached to the scalp. Um, and that means it couldn't have been there longer than about 20 years. And, you know, more disappeared in 2004. So it, it fits in that time frame and the general location and seems to be female, although we don't have that for sure. That's all we know for, for now. Uh, I, I know the, the police uh, um, and prosecutor's office are investigating this and taking it very seriously. And I'm sure there's tests being conducted on the remains. I expect we'll have the answer sooner than later. I kind of expected to know last week. So I would say in the next couple of weeks, we'll know, you know, if this is Mora or not. I, my hunch is that it is not Mora simply for the fact that she disappeared in February. And these remains, as far as I've been told, were buried. And the ground up in New Hampshire in February is like concrete. You just can't, right. you can't dig up the ground without a lot of effort, without drawing a lot of attention, especially and these like, remains were buried. That's, that's what I've been told. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I spoke to one of the workers that, that was there on the day of the discovery. And that's, that's what he said. It, it appeared at first they thought it might've been, the remains might've come in with a load of gravel from like a mm-hmm. gravel pit. But the more that they, they looked into it. it. It appeared it was actually buried in the ground at Loon Mountain. Okay, well, they just dug it up. Well, the, that'll be interesting. And also, when you guys are when listeners are listening to this, uh, James and I are recording this particular episode on October fourth. So, when he's saying a week or so, it, that time may have come and gone by the time you hear yeah, right. hear the episode. Maybe the case is solved by now. You know, that's right. Yeah, this will all be old news. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, well, I'll work through is where can people get a whole, are your books and things still on? I, I, I always knew you wrote a book about the more Murray's case. I wasn't ever really sure what it was. Yeah. Um, but true crime addict is the book. Is that available on like Amazon or we're going to get a copy of it? It's available anywhere books are sold, you know? So, okay. um, if you've got a, um, uh, you know, a Barnes and Noble near you or an independent bookstore, you can get that there. I've written six books. Um, and I tend to go half and half, you know, I'll write a true crime book and then I'll write a novel and go back and mm-hmm. forth. I enjoy the novels. I enjoy fiction. It's the true crime that, that, uh, that sells and, and pay the bills, uh, pays the bills right, right now. So what's your favorite fiction book that you've written? Probably the first one, uh, um, that that was the first book that I had that went international. Um, the it's called The Man from Primrose Lane, and uh, it's about a guy who had been fired by an alt weekly in Cleveland investigating <laughs> investigating a, a murder. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so it's kind of write what you know type of thing. But um, you know, people that read it will notice the true um, crimes that inspired it. But then it takes kind of a diversion into the world of, of sci-fi. And, uh, yeah, so that, that, uh, um, that's done, that's done well. And, you know, I, I, I want to, I, I enjoy the process of writing fiction more than I do true crime, but I'm still interested in true crime. The, the, the latest book I've written, which we're shopping around right now, is, um, is about the unsolved, murder of lisa pruitt which is another um you know northeast which we talked about with with uh that was the subject of shaker heights podcast that we did with uh true crime uh garage yeah well i'm adding to my amazon list i've been wanting i i haven't had time to read it you think in the pandemic i'd have more time but i just kept giving myself (laughs) more work to do oh yeah yeah so i know i added to my amazon list yeah the uh the the one about more murray which is the true crime addict and the man from primrose lane and and you are you're in all kinds of you you have fingers everywhere. So you 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 do true crime, you do some sci-fi stuff, <laughs> fiction. You, you were uh, uh, do I understand right that you you actually founded the Porchlight Project? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I I got tired of writing about crime and not being able to solve it, uh, mm-hmm. and and wanted to do something a little little bit more. And when genetic genealogy became a thing, and they got the Golden State Killer. And uh, it, it became clear that this was a brand new tool for law enforcement that, you know, it's the first new tool that we have to catch bad guys since we, we understood what DNA was back in like 1987 and what it could mm-hmm. do. Um, so uh, I put together this uh, with the help of um, a woman named Alexa Doubt here in Akron. We put together this nonprofit called the Porchlight Project. And what we do is we raise money for... Uh, new DNA testing and genetic genealogy for cold cases here in Ohio. And our first case was um, the 1987 unsolved murder of Barb Blatnick. Uh, she was a 16-year-old girl who had been abducted from Garfield Heights. Um, and then her body was found out um, in Cuyahoga Falls at this, uh, right next to Blossom Music Center, which is our big outdoor concert venue. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was at, back in 87, and nobody had been able to figure it out. So uh, I reached out to Cuyahoga Falls Police, and they said, hey, we have DNA from under her fingernails. And I said, well, if you have DNA, I think we can, we can figure this out. So they, uh, uh, I got them in contact with a lab. We raised the money. We paid for it all. And um, this ended up with Colleen Fitzpatrick's group, uh, Identifinders, and um, 
we they were able to separate this DNA, and it's the first time they've ever really successfully been able to do this, where you have a mixture of DNA that's from the victim and the perpetrator. And they took DNA from the victim's sister and father and used those points to kind of separate out all the DNA that had come from Barb Blatnick. And what was left were the markers for her killer. And then they uh, compared those to genetic profiles on GEDmatch and uh, Family Tree. And that led us to the family of um, James Zastonic. And James Zastonic. Uh, you know, was um, this this older guy who worked at a factory near where Barb was last seen, and he was arrested for the murder in May of 2020. And his trial was scheduled to begin, I think, this month. But unfortunately, he died of cancer uh, about three weeks ago. So there's no doubt in my mind we have the right guy. Um, and we were able to close that case and bring some modicum of, of closure to the family, but he's never going to stand trial. Um, although he died knowing that we knew his secret. So, yeah. Yeah, it's too bad that he didn't get to stand trial, but it's, but it's pretty incredible that you guys were able to solve a case from, you know, yeah. presumably solve a case from all the way back from 1987. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In our next case, we found these bones. Uh, there were these bones found in an attic in New London, Ohio. And uh, we were able to solve that case, too, and identify the remains as being a woman, a single woman school teacher who died at the age of 18 back in 1881. And to date, oh, wow. that is the oldest case solved using genetic genealogy. So we've had we, the Porchlight Project's off to a great start. And we're, we're, right now, we're, we could take on two more cases this year. That's, that's the goal. That's incredible. So, so you're, I mean, you're, you're writing true crime, you're writing fiction, you're, you're doing podcasts, you have your own podcast, The Philosophy of Crime, and you're also the, the founding member of a comedy sketch troupe. <laughs> is, is, is that accurate? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, back in college, um, we had a, we had a uh, group called uh, Last Call, Last Call Cleveland, and we did a talk show that was kind of like a cross between uh, David Letterman and Saturday Night Live. We had some skits, and it was a re- it, this was out of Kent State University, and uh, it aired. Um, you know, we're talking back in like 1999. Um, it was airing in the local region out here, so you know it was it was a wild experience because you know we were, you know, you go into local bars and and everybody knows you. You know, because everybody's, uh-huh. you know, this is still back in the day when you only had a few channels on your TV. Right. And uh, um, so it was it was amazing experience. And, and it launched, um, you know, the, the guys that were involved in that. Mike Polk is now a, a very successful comedian. Um, and, uh, you know, he's done a ton of viral stuff. And, and Chad Zumach went on to become a stand-up comedian. And it was just, uh, it, you know, looking back on it, being a part of that comedy troupe, it was just a way for us to gain experience um so and that, and that kind of put us ahead when when we graduated college and we kind of already understood the business a little bit so we were very lucky and i i still love comedy um back in 2019 before the the pandemic i was touring uh, with a true crime stand-up comedy set and it was called confessions of a true crime addict and uh, i did comedy clubs uh from nashville down to new orleans and then up the east coast 
and then from Seattle to San Diego. And, uh, it was great. You know, there's a, it was a, you, you know, um, a, a weird niche, you know, people that like stand up, yeah. but also like true crime. And, uh, I had a lot of fun touring with that. I'd like to get back to that when, when the world gets, uh, back to normal. Right. Right. Yeah. What a, what a, what a cool idea. It's, it's such a diverse background. And then, so you also host the Discovery Series, Lake Erie's Cold Cases. Your book was purchased by um, Universal TV, the, the um, True Crimatic book, and to make it into a TV show. And that was produced by Johnny Depp. Did you meet Johnny? Uh, <laughs> I did not meet him. I think I was in the same room as he was for a minute. Um, but, uh, you know, that... Just like anything in, in Hollywood, these, these deals happen, and then, like, you get really excited, and then a year later, nothing more has happened. Right. You know, I don't know what's going on with True Crime Addict right now, and I don't think it's with Johnny Depp's company anymore. Um, but what was, what was exciting about that experience is Richard Price wrote the, the adaptation for the pilot. And Richard uh -huh. Price um, uh, was one of the, the writers behind The Wire. And, mm -hmm. he, you know, he's a novelist, too. Um, he also wrote, you know, classic movies like Rain Man and um, The Color of Money, I believe. Um, just a really neat guy. And he came out to Akron and hung out with me and my family for a couple of days doing research. And uh, that, to me, like, you know, just meeting one of, one of you know, as a writer, one of my uh, idols was, um, you know, if nothing else happens with my career, that was, that, that was good enough for me. I mean, it was, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. It had to be awesome. Especially you being a writer. I'm sure that had to be oh, yeah. amazing to be able to pick his brain for a couple of days. Yes. Yeah. I learned a lot just, just in the two or three days we were kicking around Akron. And so then we also then move in the realm of tr uh, true crime podcast besides your work on the, the Maura Murray case. Uh, in 2018, you started your own show called the philosophy of crime, which is an interesting concept. Can you, can you explain there's, you have what, over 400 episodes now. Oh, I wish. Uh, no, I, I do uh, uh, six episodes every year. Um, so I do a season every year. Um, so each season is six episodes, and I've done it for four years. So okay. um, I think they're just numbered like TV episodes because that's what I got used to, like, like <laughs> writing oh, them out. Like so it's like episode four. 101 is, you know, the, the first right. episode. So, um, yeah, the philosophy of crime, I wanted to do, uh, I had a lot of things to say about true crime. Uh, having been a reporter for many years and, and mm -hmm. kind of moving up the ranks. But I, I'm also very interested in philosophy. And um, with uh, philosophy of crime, I look at the big questions behind true crime and then go to philosophy for answers. For instance, why are we so obsessed with true crime? You know, what would, um, what would uh, Plato say about that? What would Socrates have to say about our obsession? Mm -hmm. Where did this come from? Um, you know, how do lie detector tests really work? What's the history of that? How does that intersect with philosophy? You know, profiling, um, you know, the big, all these big questions. And then it, then it goes into philosophy for, um, potential answers. And so it's, it's kind of like, kind of almost like, uh, you know, a, a poor man's version of cosmos if it was about true crime. Right. I think you should do an episode on, breaking down the philosophy behind true crime online trolls oh god because yeah. i would i would love to understand <laughs> the time and energy that some of these people put into do you trolling. do you 
how how much do you have to deal with that? Like, how, what's your experience been with with? Um, oh, a ton. I mean, I don't. I've learned to not deal with it too much. But yeah. I mean, I mean, Truth and Justice has been around for long enough, and we've covered enough controversial cases. You know, most of our social media pages have forty, fifty thousand followers on them. So yeah, there, there's always. I mean, I I've had now. I think this is the second, maybe the third time where a troll group got so upset about what I was saying about a case that they started their own podcast solely <laughs> aimed at telling everybody what I'm doing wrong in my, you know, cause they, 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 they get like banned from groups and kicked yeah. out for being assholes. And then they're like, well, then now we're going to make our own podcast. Of course. Uh, it's happened. That's happened two or three times. Well, uh, that's good to know because, uh, yeah, that, that it, it's, it's disheartening, but, um, that you know the 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 worst case for that is seems to be the Maura Murray case for for whatever reason mm-hmm. and I've been warning the Murray family for the last year or two that the 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 level of hate that they were allowing on the official Facebook page was going to create kind of these evangelical like many right. groups and it was getting out of hand and nothing was done about it and then uh, I went on vacation with my family this past summer to the Outer Banks, and uh, somebody came to our vacation house and left a threatening note and a brick and part of a camera rig um, on the steps of our of our rental, about 10 feet from where my daughter was sleeping. So um, I, that's that's been the worst of it so far, uh, but yeah, it's, I, it's I nuts. Thankfully, I haven't dealt with anything that close to home. Right. I mean, I had to get like a restraining order and like in the middle of vacation, I'm dealing with judges and lawyers and it's stupid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there, there, there's an episode for you in your next season. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, That's it's, actually not a bad idea. behind it? That's not a bad idea. Well, I find obviously, I mean, I talk to hundreds of true crime podcasters on the show all the time and it's, it's not unique to any of us every single, you know, I haven't had it with this show too much because we're not really taking sides. I mean, I'm sure they're out there, but. Compared to, you know, when you're doing, especially when you're doing investigative work, particularly I do wrongful conviction work or missing persons work is the same. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's got their theories and it's just like the, the level of cognitive dissonance blows me away. It's like, I've decided that I think this is what happened. Yeah. And I want to listen to this guy because I'm sure he's going to agree. And, oh, he's saying something different. He's obviously the devil because yes. I know that I'm right. Yeah. yeah. It's like we're like, they think we're attacking them personally. If we mm-hmm. if we just have a, a, a different opinion, it's uh, and and now we live in a time where you know with a hundred dollars worth of equipment and an old laptop, they can they can get their podcast out there and you know devote right. it to you know the the I hate Bob Ruff uh, fan club. <laughs> That's and, exactly <laughs> what it is. And then, and then they can they can sell merch and uh, you know. <laughs> right. One of them came, it came out a couple of years ago and they had some spinoff of my name and they're going to really tell the truth about the case. And I was like one episode, some listeners said, just like, I listened to one of their episodes. They said your name while they're talking about the case 326 times in one episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's free advertising, I guess. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it is. Yeah, it's true. We have people on, on Truth and Justice. We actually, we have a, a Patreon where we do a video kind of like a pre-show video where we're just kind of chatting shooting the shit every every week and but the patrons the people that pay for it are in that if we have some of the trolls are in the pay they're literally paying to watch yeah. the extra content so they yeah. have more to more to troll 
Right. It, it becomes it becomes their routine. Like they wake up the, this morning, they feel they don't feel completely right until they've insulted Bob Ruff at some point. And they're like, <laughs> right. OK, yeah. I can check that off for today. Now that I got that out of the way. I'll do it again at six o'clock, but I'm yeah. good for lunch now. But that's if you remember, that's how Howard Stern, you know, became so big and famous. You know, they mm-hmm. they uh, I, I still remember that scene from from his you know biography, the movie. Where they're like the typical person that loves Howard Stern listens for, you know, 20 minutes. And the typical person that hates Howard Stern listens for two hours. You know, it's hate is a great, a great motivator. And, you know, uh, we live in a capitalist system and the advertisers know that. And it's just about who, who listens. So it's kind of, it's kind of gross when you break it down like that. But um, to some extent, I guess you need the haters too. Yeah. Yeah. It works out. Uh, so let, let's let's roll into so uh, again the podcast is called Philosophy of Crime. The c- case we want to talk about today is a is, is a case you're working on a book about the Lisa Pruitt case. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I finished I finished it over. So it kind of became my COVID project. Um, over the years, I, it, it's a case that's always been interesting to me. Um, and over the years, I'd, I'd kind of put in tons of public requests and started gathering thousands of pages of documents, but I had never had the time to just dive into it and see what was in there. And then uh, COVID happened and, um, you know, the project I was working on shut down and suddenly I had nothing to do. And so I'm like, well, let me dive in here. Let me see what I can find. And Mm -hmm. the gist of what happened is is this. Um, In 1990, September of 1990, a 16-year-old girl named Lisa Pruitt uh, decided to uh, sneak out of her house one night around midnight, and uh, she rode. And Shaker Heights is uh, kind of the most affluent suburb of of um, of Cleveland, and it's uh, it's where all the you know doctors and lawyers live. And we're talking big mansions, big yards, and uh, so a safe neighborhood on the whole. However, it it is right next to kind of you know the Cleveland ghetto on the other side, so it's a, it's a weird kind of utopia in the middle of everything, and especially back in 1990. So Lisa mm-hmm. gets on her bike, rides to her boyfriend's house, and she is then found stabbed to death. She stabbed something like 21, 22 times behind uh, a mansion. At the corner of Lee and South Woodland, she's about 100 feet from her boyfriend's back door on the day that he gets out of the mental hospital. Mm-hmm. So when I first heard about that, I'm like, oh, that's pretty clear cut, you know? Right. Um, but the next day, a bunch of the um, boyfriend's friends go to police and they say, hey, it wasn't the boyfriend. It was the weird kid in school. It was this kid, Kevin Young. Um, and there was no evidence linking Kevin to the crime scene at all. He was the weird kid in school. He wore black. He listened to Metallica. He said ob- obscene things. And uh, the police went with it. it it's kind of like a modern-day crucible. You know, they pointed at, you know, I saw, you know, I saw uh, Goody Young, you know, dancing with the devil. And, and, and the, the police bought it. And they went after this kid, Kevin Young for years, and eventually they put him on trial in 1993. He was acquitted, thankfully, but um, the whole thing ruined his life. And, uh, you know, he lived in, is kind of like a pariah in the area until he drank himself to death uh, and um, 
and like uh, and there's some other complications too back in 2017. Uh, so I, you know, I'm thinking, well, there's a lot of evidence here against the boyfriend. So I, I, I delve into these into these old papers, and I find something amazing. There was another young man who was at the scene of the crime that night that the police knew about, that the prosecutors knew about, but that was never made public. And this guy's name was David Brannigan, and he's dead too. He died uh, not too too long after Kevin Young, actually. Um, but back in 1990, uh, Brannigan knew uh, he happened to be at that Arabica coffee shop, um, and that was a big uh, part of the mystery for police because whoever killed Lisa had to know she was sneaking out of the house and going to see her boyfriend that night. Mm-hmm. And one of the boyfriend's friends went to this coffee shop, Arabica, and told Kevin Young, the kid that was uh, uh, tried for the murder, that Lisa was sneaking out. So the police were like, see, Kevin knew, so he obviously did it. Well, there were two other customers there when Dan's friend was telling Kevin about Lisa sneaking out of their house. And it was David Brannigan and his girlfriend, Holly. Um, so Brannigan had that information too. Brannigan lived on Sedgwick, which is parallel to Lee. Essentially, he lived about seven houses away from where Lisa's body was found. And he drops off Holly in enough time to intersect with Lisa. He carries knives, and he has a history of, of, of sexual and, and violent behavior. Um, I tracked down his the mother of his child, who essentially was a common-law wife, and I asked her, I said, do you think it's possible he was the one that killed Lisa? And she said, do I, do I think he killed Lisa? She said, let me tell you a story. When he was in preschool, another boy came up to him one day and hit him on the back of the head. And he didn't do anything, didn't say anything, but he waited until lunchtime. And when the kid wasn't looking, he took the kid's sandwich and poured Comet cleaner in it. He, she said, do I, do I, and tried to kill this kid in preschool. Mm-hmm. Said, do I think, do I think he killed Lisa Pruitt? She said, absolutely, I wouldn't be surprised. And um, I tracked down a number of his ex-girlfriends, and they all have frightening stories. I mean, he, he, he raped a girl um, in, in high school after he broke into her house. And that's another thing. He fully admitted to several people that he had this hobby of breaking into homes around that block that neighborhood and the woman that owned the property where Lisa's body was found that night believed that somebody was trying to break into a rental car in her driveway about 10 minutes before Lisa started screaming. So he's the best suspect we've ever had. And uh, so that that's kind of where the, the book leads to. Are you hoping through the book to, to actually bring some closure in the case? I mean, you're typically it seems like in your work, you're not just telling a story. You know, I, I'm really hoping we can we can bring closure to not just this case, but a couple more, um, and, and by simply by testing the evidence that they had from back in 1990 to see if this guy's mm-hmm. DNA is anywhere. Now that we have genetic genealogy, I mean, the Porchlight Project set up here that we could pay for the whole thing if they wanted, um, and I think we could get a definitive answer. With Brannigan, there's another little wrinkle here because. Uh, five years before Lisa was murdered, 1985, and eight houses north of where she was found 
was a vicious double homicide. Um, an elderly couple uh, were stabbed to death in their home. Now, the only witness in that case is a young boy, or not a young boy, he was a, uh, I think, 15, 16-year-old teenager at the time, David Brannigan. David Brannigan was the only witness. He says he saw a black man running out of their house. Uh, He fully admits to um, breaking into the house next door to to where this double homicide occurred the night of the homicide. Um, He's just involved in all this stuff. And I think if they went back to that 1985 double homicide and tested the evidence there, that um, we could also find Brannigan's DNA. God, that's crazy. Oh, well, I'm looking. Do you have any idea? You're, you said you're still shopping the book around, so you, you don't have a publisher yet? Yeah, we're finding a home for it right now. There's, um, so I should know in the next couple of weeks, you know, what's going to happen. But the process is so long that this book probably won't be on shelves for until like 2023 sometime. So still, it's still a couple of years. While you were uh, talking about the case, I, I went back through it. Was, I was scanning through my emails with Nick. I was Kevin Young. That was. Oh, no his, way. <laughs> when you said Kevin Young, the guy that was that was tried for it, I was like, "That sounds familiar." I'm pretty sure that's the part I played. It tells you how good. Oh, my that's memory great. Is. Yeah, so you so were I the played, you were the key player. Yeah, yep. I had a lot of lines. You know, I'm kind of a big deal, James. <laughs> I understand. So, so yeah, if you guys uh, listening want to want a little little more background on the case before James's book go, comes out, check out on True Crime Garage their six part series called Shaker Heights. It tells you all about this case, the murder of. Lisa Pruitt, uh, and also make sure you check out uh, James's other works. I'll ha- I'll make sure that Erica puts lists of all the books that you've written uh, in uh, in the show notes so people can look those up. And Thank the you. podcast is called The Philosophy of Crime, and his name is James Renner. Check out his work both in the the podcasting space, his his books. He does a lot of great work. Check out the Porchlight Project. I'm sure there's places there where people can donate to help get some of these cases solved. And James, Absolutely. thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. Hey, thanks so much. I'm glad we could do this. True Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening, and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.